Under normal circumstances, natural disasters are scary and stressful events. But on top of a pandemic, they become much more rattling. In this episode of 2020 Vision, we are diving into natural disasters that have happened this year and how the coronavirus pandemic has influenced people's responses to them. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of 2020 Vision. I'm your host, Elise Dunaway. On March 18th, the Salt Lake Valley experienced a 5.7 magnitude earthquake. On September 8th, hurricane strength winds blew through parts of northern Utah, with some gusts clocking in at 112 miles per hour. Both events resulted in power outages for Salt Lake City residents. After the windstorm, some people were without power for over 100 hours. The earthquake didn't do much physical damage, although the Moroni statue on top of the Salt Lake Temple did lose its trumpet. The windstorm knocked over countless trees and damaged many buildings in the area. One person reportedly died as a result of the storm. These events have been stressful for residents, especially in the relatively quick secession they have occurred in. And with the pandemic still happening, natural disasters have just added to that stress. To learn more about what causes natural disasters and what the effects of them are, J.T. Wistersill interviewed Dr. Mark Lowen, a professor of geology and geophysics at the University of Utah. What led to the earthquakes in Salt Lake City now when they haven't, we haven't seen one of that magnitude in the last few years? Well, earthquakes are intermittent. There's no real reason why it happened this year, but it's inevitable that earthquakes will come. One of the interesting things is we didn't really understand that particular segment of the fault. It's probably related to the Wasatch Fault, but having it fracture out the magnet was a little interesting. And fortunately, we were able to learn a lot about the nature of that fault by watching the aftershocks after that. Was the damage more substantial than maybe you thought it was going to be on campus and around the city? Certain, certain parts of the city had more damage than others. There was a little bit of damage on campus, but almost minimal. Most of the damage happened in places where we have liquefaction, in which old lake sediments are waterlogged and they shake in a little bit different way. So you combine that with unsupported brick masonry buildings, and that's where most of the, most of the damage that happened in the whole Salt Lake Valley was in unsupported brick masonry structures. But honestly, that earthquake really was a warning. Uh, that was not the kind of earthquake that we're gonna get from the fault line that goes underneath the university. And we're due for that. Sometime in the next 50 to 100 years, almost certainly there will be a higher than magnitude six earthquake. And those of us who got a lot of shaking in different kinds of structures that's a warning for what's coming. And we don't, it's difficult to predict when that could be, right? Because you, I mean, 50 to 100 years is obviously a very broad timeline, but I mean, no one really predicted we were going to get the last earthquake, right? So it's difficult to know exactly when that will come, correct? Well, we know it's coming yes. because we can go down and we can dig through the fault scarps and we can time the last ruptures on the fault. And when the fault goes okay. off every 600 years, and it's been 700 years since the fault has gone off, you kind of know that you're due. 
do you think it's difficult for people when things like earthquake or all the other natural disasters that are going on and a lot of people were isolating kind of by themselves, but do you think specifically the isolation factor was tough for people? Yeah. And one of the things is often you don't feel an earthquake that happens while you're driving in the car. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. On a normal March, you know, most of those people or April, most of those people are going to be in their cars on the way to work. Instead, they're sitting at home and, you know, that's when you feel it. Do you think people, let's say to now when there was kind of like up in the mountains recently, we could see all the smoke from the fires coming up there. And I know earthquakes are a little differently, but the reaction like at the start of the pandemic when you had everyone kind of freaking out because there were earthquakes and we didn't understand it versus the reaction when there's a stronger fire and stuff like that. Now the understanding of the pandemic, do you feel like people have evolved a little bit and are more comfortable with these kind of things? Yeah. People get used to it. Just, just contrast how April, March and April went down um, here in Salt Lake City. You know, people were not going out of their house. Nobody was going anywhere. Everyone was wearing a mask and we were getting 15 to 20 cases a day. You know, compare that to now when everyone's resuming their life and now we're getting 900 to 1300 cases a day. You know, it's never been more dangerous in Salt Lake City than it is today as far as COVID. But yet our behavior has done an inverse of the cases. And, you know, maybe that's part of why we have those case levels the way we do. Do you think it's like that because people are getting tired of following certain protocols and things like that? Or what reasons do you think it could be that people are kind of reverting, in some cases, back to normal? Well, un unfortunately, uh, the wearing of masks is the biggest thing that we can do. You know, we didn't know a whole lot about how things were going. You know, people were a lot more worried about wiping down their uh, Grubhub order with alcohol, you know, where likely that's not gonna be the thing that actually gives you coronavirus. But now, you know, in some sectors, people, mask wearing has gone from a scientific uh, precaution to some sort of political statement. And that's, that's hurt us a little bit. Um, but of course, you know, how long, you know, how long can you continue to not live your life in the same way? So, you know, I, I think what we need is, is a mixture of safe behavior and calculated risk. You know, some universities are online only, and at the university, we have been for the last two weeks in order to help stop things and also related to having the vice presidential debate. But, you know, there, there's a mix of different strategies that you can use. Fortunately, Utah is a very healthy state as far as, you know, it skews younger, it skews healthier. Um, so the risks are less for some people in Utah than they are in some other states. But certainly, you know, we're not on top of the virus in any way. Shifting to the windstorms that kind of happened recently, can you talk to me about, number one, why were they were so powerful and was the timing of it related to the fires? I mean, I know personally by where I live, I mean, I saw these massive trees come down and block the road. So it was something I just don't think many people were prepared to deal with. So if you live on the Wasatch Front, you're used to windstorms. What direction does the wind come from? Always comes from the west. Or the southwest you know it's always coming from that direction we haven't really had you know in the 25 years i've lived here we haven't had any kind of storm where the majority wind comes from the east 
And so in this case, you know, it had to do with high and low pressure systems forcing the wind along. But the other thing is the Uinta Mountains really funneled it. So that, that saved Utah Valley um, and Southern Utah. And the wind damage was really restricted to the Salt Lake Valley and North Ogden area. But what really happened is the wind came up over the top of the Wasatch Mountains and then it channeled straight down into the valley and literally smashed between 1300 East and 700 East. So you think about places like Liberty Park, a lot of those old, cool, mature trees really took a hit. And another thing that really took a hit because of the surface area compared to the root system are a lot of the uh, fir and spruce trees. So you see a lot of those Christmas trees falling over because they had so much surface area to catch that wind. And you know, maybe over time, I don't really know if trees strengthen themselves based on the prevailing wind, but there, there's some of that that goes on. And so I think it's just the perfect storm where we got this mixture of a really strong wind you know, literally we had hurricane force winds in the Salt Lake Valley. You know, people lost windows, people lost doors, roofs, things like that. It's pretty funny that, you know, we're getting levels of smoke and haze in the summer from forest fires. You know, we are in the midst of a pandemic. We've had relatively significant earthquake and then we get this crazy windstorm. Getting to the windstorms, how did the students you talked to, how did that, how did they kind of react to the windstorms and everything? Well, they enjoyed not having class because yeah. canceled classes. Uh, but a lot of people lost power for up to a week. You know, trees don't fall over in, in isolation. So we had lots of, lots of things going down that hit power lines. And then that has effects all, all along. I was fortunate, you know, I was in a block that had power and it was an island of somehow power. You know, everywhere else around me had no power for several days. Can you define for me something like the, like a downslope wind and stuff like that? Cause that's something I, I personally have not been the most familiar with. So could you talk to me about that, what that is? Well, when you're wind and you come against an obstacle, what are you gonna do? You've gotta go over it. Right, so, so what happened in that case is the wind came along Wyoming and then it's going across the mountains and across the mountains and then it drops into the valley and then it just basically slammed into a narrow strip. So it's just like wind going over the wing of an airplane. It follows over the contour and then, you know, fortune, unfortunately, you know, between 1300 and 1700 or 700 east is where the wind just landed. Talking about the fires and stuff like that, something we've seen the past in Utah, but in certain parts of Utah, it did seem to be worse this year and others. Why do you think that was? Well, there, there's a correlation between extreme weather and things like the winter storm and the fire seasons that we've seen. You know, California had more fires than ever in recorded history this year, as far as acreage burned, and it doubled the previous record. All of this is related to how the surface temperature of the ocean is changing weather around the world. The ocean is documentatively getting hotter everywhere. You know, last year was the hottest year on record in the Arctic, you know, since we've been taking records. And these warmer ocean temperatures, they do things like increase 
the power of hurricanes. You know, this is the first time we've had 10 named storms make landfall in, you know, in the Atlantic hurricane season. We're, we're undergoing a uh, La Nina event. All of these things have effect on the weather and especially affect California. So California got warmer and warmer and drier and drier. And that's, you know, all you need is a lightning strike and that sets the fire, forest on fire. There's really no amount of raking the forest that you could do to save the forests of California. What we're doing is we're warming the planet and with a warming planet comes a warmer ocean and with a warmer ocean comes more extreme weather. Were you, were you surprised to see the fire? Like I know personally, I couldn't see, there weren't a ton of them I saw, but I did see the one up in the mountains the one day you could see the smoke coming off that mountain from campus. Were you surprised to see it so close to campus or up in the mountains or was that something that didn't surprise you? No, I mean, we've had fires in Red Butte Canyon right behind Red Butte Park and the Utah Museum of Natural History. Wherever there's dry vegetation, you can have a fire. Mm -hmm. you know, I haven't really seen a fire on Mount Olympus since I've been here before this one. So that was impressive, which probably was the fire that you saw. Talk to me about how the fires and stuff like that have an impact on the air quality of Utah, which we already know has been an issue for the last couple of years. Well, you know, it could be worse. We could have fires in January, in which we have weather inversions to trap it in. But yeah, we've been suffering from Oregon and Washington and those fires over there. You know, most, most of the smoke in our skies is not from domestic Utah fires. It's really coming from out there. But, you know, I, I've seen air quality in the last month that was worse than I've ever seen in the worst inversion as far as you know, from the middle of the city, you cannot see the mountains on either side. And that's, that's apocalyptic levels of air quality, which is bad for anybody who has any kind of respiratory complications, including COVID. So talking about your, like students you've talked with and worked with specifically, how have you seen since the start of the pandemic? And like we kind of talked about a little bit with the earthquakes to the evolution of now, that combination of the pandemic and the disasters have kind of impacted them and how they've kind of changed over the time. I mean, at first we were, you know, we were watching it last semester in class and I kept talking about it and what was going to happen, at least how I saw it, predicting that we were not gonna come back after, after spring break and all these things. So, so we kind of got to watch the whole thing unfold um, from a scientific point of view. At the same time, Everyone adapts so well, you know, students have adapted to going online. You know, I think some of the professors have adapted well to going online as well. But the real thing is, I think everybody's just hungering for interaction with other students in some way. I mean, it's nice, we can talk on Zoom, but, you know, I think we're all dying to get back into the classroom and get life back to normal. But unfortunately, I, I really think that COVID's gonna be with us at least for another couple of years. And then the question comes to when we get a vaccine, how long is that vaccine going to keep you safe? You know, eventually the pro vaccine will probably be incorporated into the yearly flu shot, but we, we're still not out of the woods yet, but I'm, I'm encouraged that, you know, over time, if we just keep, keep being careful, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Looking ahead to the future, just based on different trends we've seen this year and in years past, what kind of natural disasters do you think we could see in Utah or just different trends going back to even stuff like the air quality? Well, the, th the thing I really worry about is 
getting that 6.5 or 6 or even 7, you know, 7 is about the strongest earthquake that we potentially think we could get from this set of faults in the Intermountain region. But if we got anywhere between a 6 and a 7 earthquake at like 4 in the afternoon on February 2, when it's snowy outside, that will be apocalyptic for Salt Lake City. You know, you have gridlock, you have fires, it's cold, there's no power. Yeah, it could be really bad. The earthquake's coming. Hopefully it doesn't come in our lifetime, but it definitely has a likelihood of doing that. Talking about the fires, do you see those in, as we, the years continue to go on, do you see those getting worse or potentially better each throughout the summer season into the fall season? Yeah, I mean, it's going to get worse as, as the climate changes. Uh, we're already seeing plant communities shift in response in which some sorts of plants are just dying out at certain elevations and others are moving to higher elevations, that sort of thing. But as long as we have these extremes in weather, you know, we're going to get the deadly, you know, California is the natural disaster state. You know, they have fires and then next spring it's going to rain like a ton and there's going to be no cover for the soil and it's all going to get landslided across when they get extreme rain. You know, these are the kind of things that we expect to happen demonstratively in a warming world. More extreme weather. How do you see the air quality being in Utah over the next few years? And how bad do you think it could eventually get if we're talking way in the future? So some of the best air quality we've ever had during the first three weeks of the COVID quarantines, right? Nobody's driving. In fact, that phenomenon is going on worldwide. So air quality is something we can do something about. And it's definitely related to the burning of fossil fuels. Um, but you know, unfortunately, you know, this world has 300 million air conditioners, right? And it's got how many billion people? And how many of those 7 billion people want to have an air conditioner and are going to have one in the next 50 years? All of that takes a lot of fossil fuel to run. So, you know, what is the answer? I don't know. But, you know, we are making our air quality worse. And in, in some places, air quality is going to be a political issue enough that governments will change behavior. You know, there are governments in Asia that have shut down industries near larger cities because they don't want the people complaining about air quality, which is horrendous. But we have some of those same levels of air quality, both on particulates and, um, and gases in Salt Lake City in times like January and February. So yeah, it's an issue and it's going to be affecting us for a while. If a student came to you and just said they were worried and stressed out about everything going on in the future with the disasters relating to the pandemic, what advice would you give them for dealing with all of that to just today? Well, we've got to just take it in stride. You know, there have been worse times. There will be better times. You know, just do what you can. As Dr. Lowen said, 
increasing temperatures worldwide will result in more natural disasters each year. There are things we can do to reduce this, and many people and groups are working towards a global solution. In the immediate aftermath of a natural disaster, something that people may not consider is the cleanup and restoration efforts. As soon as it is safe to do so, people are out there working to get the city back up and running. Our reporter, Jacob Rueda, talked to facility managers at the University of Utah to learn more about what they do. The University of Utah, along with the northern part of the state, experienced its share of severe geological and weather events in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020. A 5.7 magnitude earthquake struck in the early hours of March 18th, with several aftershocks following. Months later, on September 8th, wind gusts of over 100 miles an hour buffeted the Wasatch Front. While the windstorm toppled trees and downed power lines, the earthquake knocked out power in several buildings on campus. Nerves were already shaken as a result of the worst public health crisis in over a hundred years. An earthquake and tree-toppling wind gusts made a precarious situation even worse. Despite the precariousness of the situation, facility crews and volunteers at the university managed to help in cleanup efforts. After affected areas were surveyed, crews went about repairing and clearing whatever was necessary to restore the campus back to full operation. U Facility Engineer Manager Bruce Starley handles the infrastructure for a number of utility systems throughout campus. With regards to the earthquake in March, he says the effects of it were somewhat disturbing and that possible residual damage may still exist. There was some disruption in some of our underground piping systems, whether it be gas, water, our heating water, our chilled water, our sewer systems. Even now, we, we continue to see small cracks or something that might have started to form. And now it's, it gets bigger to where it becomes visible to us. And, and once we dig up, we can't specifically say it was due to the earthquake. But, you know, the method of failure on some of these, it, it looks like it definitely could have been a factor. The damage caused by the earthquake to the power and electrical grid disrupted operations throughout campus, which Starley says affected elevator and fire suppression systems. We had lots of interruptions to a lot of those things. Fire alarms going off. Elevators have a lot of safety features when big occurrences like this happen, even during the wind also, it will shut elevators down for safety reasons because it thinks that something hit the elevator or it's falling or something strange happens. So we did have some people trapped. We had to do a lot of fixes on the elevators, reset a lot of elevators all over campus, reset a lot of breakers prop up light poles that either got blown down or knocked down. There were electrical lines that were misplaced. Lots of things like that that could have created disaster situations and, and problems. The epicenter of the earthquake was roughly three miles north of Magna. The University of Utah seismograph station reported 20 aftershocks of magnitude 3 or larger in the hour after the initial quake. The largest aftershock occurred at 7.14 a.m., measuring 4.6 on the Richter scale. The Associated Press reported the earthquake was felt along the neighboring states of Colorado, Idaho, Wyoming, and Nevada. And like the earthquake, the downslope winds on September 8th caused considerable damage throughout the U campus. There were multiple other buildings that had either some doors ripped off, window damage. I know there were a couple instances where the door had gotten opened by a pedestrian and then the wind had caught it and just tore it off the hinges and destroyed it. So lots of smaller windows, doors, things on roofs, that sort of thing. 
Starley says damage to the Beverly Sorensen Art Center was noticeable despite individuals walking past the building and not noticing it. Years of working in facility management gave him a more observant eye on campus and elsewhere. You look on the outside of the building and there's two decorative panels missing on the one side. So, I mean, you have to look up to see it and casual students may not bother looking at those things. But when you work in facilities for a long time, it's like it's like now when I when I walk into a restaurant or a store, I'm looking at fire extinguishers, I'm looking at light fixtures, I'm looking at all these weird things that you just don't pay attention to unless it's something you do for a living, right? Most people just take all these things for granted. Starley wasn't the only one surveying damage around campus. Ground supervisor at the U, John Walker, is responsible for overseeing the landscape maintenance. He says the wind took out about 140 trees, mostly around President's Circle, which he and Starley say was one of the most affected areas of the windstorm. Walker says he underestimated the strength of the wind when first hearing about it on the weather report the previous day. We've had windstorms up on campus before, so I was prepared to come in and clean up a couple limbs and go through campus, but I really didn't think we would lose as many trees as we did. I didn't think it was going to be that bad. Upon arriving on campus, Walker said he grew concerned over the safety of students and his crew after seeing how powerful the wind was. I actually pulled people back in and didn't want them out on campus just because so many trees were still coming down and the wind was still blowing so hard. So, yeah, it was pretty scary that morning. The U of U alert system sent out a notice at 8.36 a.m. to all faculty and students, notifying them that classes had been canceled for the day. The Daily Utah Chronicle reported gusts of 112 miles per hour that day on campus. Aside from uprooting trees and power lines, the windstorm took out power at U student housing and other buildings. The university has three substations supported by Rocky Mountain Power, which feed into different parts of the campus. One is by the stadium, the other by the Jewish Community Center, and the third one by Red Butte Gardens. Facilities manager Starley explains how electricity is distributed from the substations to the campus in situations like the earthquake and the windstorm. What we did is we set that up where it's basically a loop. So if we lose a substation or we lose power from, and Rocky Mountain feeds those from different areas. So if we lose one of those substations, we have the ability to switch over and carry the load from one of the other substations to have redundant power. In an email exchange, Starley said the hospital is the first to receive power in case of an outage to make sure it can handle the load of incoming electricity before it is distributed to other parts of campus manually. Patient care receives electricity automatically, so if it can handle the flow of incoming electricity, then power is then manually distributed to the other parts of campus. While electricity was being restored, ground supervisor Walker said making sure everyone was safe was a top priority. So we were getting some of the main sidewalks cleared and using caution tape and roping off any sections of sidewalk or any areas of campus that could possibly have a tree come down or branches come out of the tree that that would be unsafe for students to be around. Clearing debris while the windstorm was still taking place posed an interesting challenge for Walker and his crew. He said canceling classes that day made it easier to work. Luckily, we had some help with the university, and they did close campus, so that made it easier for us to move around and keep campus safe without having to worry about a lot of students on campus. And then working with my people, it was just, I mean, they're they're all really good. We have some really good trained arborists, so they know what they're doing. They know what they're looking for uh, around dangerous trees, and they were able to work with the rest of my staff and keep everything safe while they took the trees apart and while they cleared sidewalks. Even though most of the big cleanup was out of the way, Walker says there is still more to do, like clearing stumps before replanting new trees. 
With assistance both from the university and contributing students, he hopes to finish that project within the next year. However, seeing the effect of the windstorm right after it happened impacted Walker emotionally. He describes what he felt when he first saw the trees struck down by the storm. It was sad, honestly. I, I was driving around in my cart, and I sat in front of the park building for a little bit and just kind of sat there and thought about all the trees that we'd lost. And it was definitely sad to see. We've never lost this many trees on campus in a storm at one time. So it was hard. There were a lot of, a lot of really cool trees that I wish we still had on campus. So hopefully when we get them replanted, we can get those grown back in. With the majority of trees cleared and the debris out of the way, the campus didn't look the same to Walker. It's weird, honestly. There's a couple of spots that I drive through that you know, I'm used to having the tree canopy and used to having everything kind of filled in. And now that we've lost a couple of those trees, it's, it's weird to see some of the, the openness on campus. It's kind of strange. Carpentry shop supervisor Tim Clark shared a similar sentiment. He said the visual of the damage caused by the windstorm was tragic. These big, beautiful trees that make the campus so picturesque, you know, when you're walking down some of these sidewalks down near the Union and the bookstore and along the library, these big, beautiful corridors of trees. It's really sad to see the big root balls stuck up in the air and the ground around it being damaged. And it was just, you know, it's, it's really sad. Ground Supervisor Walker said roughly 10 to 12 truckloads worth of trees were gathered after the cleanup. About six of those loads were donated to local Native American tribes for firewood, and two trees worth of wood were donated to elementary and preschools in the area. Twigs, branches, and wood that couldn't be used was gathered and sent to the Salt Lake landfill as green waste. The rest of the wood remained on campus and sent to the carpentry shop where Clark and his team repurposed the wood for university use. Commemorative gifts were made out of the recovered wood for faculty and staff. We have a former carpenter shop and facilities coordinator, Scott Leach, who, who harvested some of these fallen trees, and he makes retirement gifts for faculty and staff. So he'll turn wood bowls on his lathe, and we'll use the same trees for plaques for retirement gifts or special projects around campus. Clark recalls using wood from fallen trees to make a conference room table for the Gardner Commons building, which was under construction at the time. He says the carpentry shop tries to do what it can with the wood from fallen trees, although it is not feasible to do something like create furniture with it all the time. After a piece of furniture is made, it is then delivered to the building or department requesting it. We have some raw wood in our storage here at the carpenter shop, so we can build to order whatever they want. If they want a conference room table or a custom desk, we can make whatever they want because we have some of the lumber on site ready to go. Cleanup and restoration efforts aside, Starley, Walker, and Clark all recognize the misfortune of experiencing weather and geological events during a health crisis as severe as the COVID-19 pandemic. Regardless of that, all three supervisors said they maintained protocols to ensure a safe working environment for everyone. Walker says working outdoors made it a little easier to manage. Everyone was working in their areas. Everyone had masks on and just trying to be aware of who was around and keeping everything clean. I think with our outdoor stuff, we're not as affected by a lot of the COVID restrictions because we are working outside and it is a little easier to isolate and have that social distancing. But definitely when we had volunteers come in to help out, that was one of the priorities was making sure everyone had masks and we were practicing social distancing and keeping everyone safe as far as that goes. Walker praised the volunteers who came out to help with clearing the debris and helping out the facilities crew when they needed it. 
as soon as almost the day of the storm, I started getting calls from different departments on campus, different entities wanting to know how they could help and what they could do to clean up. We had the athletics, a lot of the athletics teams came out, fraternities and sororities came out, the MUS came out, a lot of student volunteers and a lot of help getting that cleaned up. And it was pretty amazing to have that campus community come out and spend their time helping us clean up. The cleanup and restoration of the U campus was not easy, and any such effort costs time and money. Facilities manager Starley said the cost of cleaning up after the windstorm and earthquake added up fairly quickly. We're approaching $100,000 in material and labor already for risk assessment and insurance damages for the windstorm, just from a facility standpoint. The earthquake, to be honest with you, our infrastructure was pretty robust. There wasn't a lot of problems there. Some of the older buildings may have lost a few bricks and stuff like that. But overall, we were pretty lucky on that system. And again, it's hard to say we we have had some occasions where we've had to dig up some water lines and some sewer lines and some storm drain lines since then that may have had an impact on them, but it's difficult to say. Despite the cost of cleanup, restoration, and any lingering effects of these natural events, the University of Utah facilities and custodial departments work every day to keep the campus clean and running smoothly, especially during this difficult time. Clark compared the diligence of the U facility staff to that of the United States Postal Service, and rightly so, for it is through their endurance and that of other unsung individuals who make it possible for the campus to look and function its best every day. This is Jacob Rueda for 2020 Vision. The work of the campus facilities management team and similar teams in the city is important and often goes unrecognized. Without them, recovery from a natural disaster would be impossible. While there is no way to know for sure when the next natural disaster will strike, there are things we can do to prepare. Preparing for a natural disaster looks different this year. COVID restrictions may make it harder to gather supplies. It's important to plan ahead and stay informed. Professionals have always recommended having an emergency plan in place. Knowing what to do in the event of an earthquake or other natural disaster can help keep you safe and limit the damage done. There are many resources out there that you can utilize to help make an emergency plan and learn more about natural disasters. Due to the fact that we live along a major fault line, being prepared for an earthquake is of utmost importance. Shakeout.org and ussc.utah.gov are both great resources that have information about earthquakes for schools, businesses, and individual people. The CDC also has emergency preparedness guides with information about a variety of natural disasters, such as hurricanes, tornadoes, wildfires, and more. Taking the time to learn and prepare now is a great way to keep yourself and those around you safe. Production of this episode was made possible by the University of Utah's Department of Communication and Maria Chaleos Nelson. Special thanks to Dr. Mark Lowen, Bruce Starley, John Walker, and Tim Clark for their insight and perspectives on the effects of natural disasters. This week, the interview was conducted by JT Wistersill. Special reporting was done by Jacob Rueda. 
social media by Ivana Martinez, and production of the episode by Elise Dunaway. Join us next time to learn more about what education is like in a pandemic. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 2020 Vision.